Heaven is the design and end of this important change. What is our knowledge and faith but to know and believe that heaven consists in the glory and love of God there manifested, and that it was purchased by Christ and given by His covenant? What is our hope but the hope of glory, which we through the Spirit wait for? What is our love but a desire of communion with the blessed God begun here and perfected hereafter? What Christ teaches and commands, He works in us by His Spirit. He sends not His Spirit to make men craftier than others for this world, but wiser to salvation and more holy and heavenly. The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Heavenly mindedness is a special work of the Spirit, and producing this change the Spirit overcomes all opposition from the world of flesh and the devil. Christ first overcame the world and teaches and causes us to overcome it, even in its flatteries and its frowns. Our faith is our victory. Whether this victory be easy and honorable to the Spirit of Christ, let us appeal to our existence of the wickedness of the world and of our own weakness and falls. None can do this work on the soul of man but God, not the most learned and holy teachers of the wisest and most affectionate parents or the greatest princes. Evil angels neither can nor will do it. Good angels do nothing toward it but as obedient ministers of God. We cannot quicken, illuminate, or sanctify ourselves. And though we have some power, both conscience and experience testify that we have nothing but what we have received. Christ promised His Spirit to all true believers to be in them as His advocate, agent, seal, and mark. And indeed the Spirit here and heaven hereafter are the chief of His promises. That this Spirit is given to all true believers is evident by the effects of it. They have ends, affections, and lives different from the rest of mankind. They live upon the hope of a better life, and their heavenly interest overrules all the opposite interests of this world, in order to which they live under the conduct of divine authority, and to obey and please God is the great business of their lives. The men of the world discern this difference, and therefore hate and oppose them because they find themselves condemned by their heavenly temper and conversation. Believers are conscious of this difference, for they desire to be better, and to trust and love God more, and to have more of the heavenly life and comforts. And when their infirmities make them doubt of their own sincerity, they would not change their governor, rule, or hope for all the world. And it is never so well and pleasant with them as when they can trust and love God most. And in their worst and weakest condition, they would fain be perfect. Indeed, whatever real goodness is found among men, it is given by the same Spirit of Christ. But, but it is notorious that, in heavenly mindedness and virtue, no part of the world is comparable to serious Christians. This spirit, Christ also expressly promised, as a means and pledges the first fruits and earnest of the heavenly glory, and therefore it is a certain proof that we shall have such a glory. He that gives us such a spiritual change, when in its nature and tendency is heavenly, he that sets our hopes and hearts on heaven, and turns the endeavors of our lives toward future blessedness, and promises preparatory grace as the earnest of that felicity, may well be trusted to perform his word in our complete eternal glory. And now, O weak and fearful soul, why shouldest thou draw back as if the manner was doubtful? Is not thy foundation firm? Is not the way of life through the valley of death made safe by him that conquered death? Art thou not yet delivered from the bondage of thy fears? Hast thou not long ago found in thee the motions and effectual operations of this spirit? And is he not still residing and working in thee as the agent and witness of Christ? If not, whence are thy groanings after God? Thy desires to be near to his glory, to know him and love him more. Whence came all the pleasures thou hast had in his sacred truth and ways and service? Who subdued for thee thy folly, pride, and vain desires? 
who made it thy choice to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his word as a better part and count the honors and preferments of the world but dung and dross? Who breathes in all those requests thou hast sent up to God? Overvalue not corrupt nature. It brings forth no such fruits as these. Remember what thou wast in the hour of temptation. How small a manner has drawn thee to sin. Forget not the days of thy youthful vanity. Overlook not the case of thy sinful neighbors, who, in the midst of light, still live in darkness, and hear not the loudest calls of God. Is it no work of Christ's Spirit that has made thee to differ? Thou hast nothing to boast of, and much to be humbled, and also to be thankful for. Thy holy desires are, alas, too weak, but they are holy. Thy love has been too cold, but it is the most holy God whom thou hast loved. Thy hopes have been too low, but thou hast hoped in God and for his heavenly glory. Thy prayers have been too dull and interrupted, but thou hast prayed for holiness in heaven. Thy labors have been too slothful, but thou hast labored for God and Christ and the good of mankind. Though thy motion was too weak and slow, it has been Godward, and therefore it is from God. O oh, bless the Lord, not only for giving thee his word and sealing it with uncontrolled miracles, but also for frequently and remarkably fulfilling his promises in the answer of thy prayers and in great deliverance of thyself and of many others, and that he has by regeneration been preparing thee for the light of glory. And wilt thou yet doubt and fear against all this evidence, experience, and foretaste? I think it no needless labor to confirm my soul in the full persuasion of the truth of its immortal nature, and of a future life of joy or misery, and of the certain truth of the Christian faith. I can no more doubt the being and perfections of God than whether there be an earth or a sun. Christianity is also known by revelation, which is so attested externally to the world, internally to holy souls, as makes faith a ruling, victorious, and comfortable principle. But the soul's immortality and future reward is known in some measure by the light of nature, and more perfectly by revelation. When I consider the great unlikeness of men's hearts and life to such a belief as we all profess, I cannot but fear that not only the ungodly, but most that truly hope for glory, have a far weaker belief of the soul's immortality and the truth of the gospel than they are apt to imagine. Can I be fully persuaded of the future rewards and punishments of souls, and that we shall be judged hereafter as we have lived here, without despising all the vanities of the world, and setting my heart with resolution and diligence to a holy, heavenly, fruitful life? Who can stand trifling, as most men do, at the door of eternity, that verily believed his immortal soul must shortly be there? Though such a one had no certainty of his own salvation, he would nevertheless search and try, watch and pray, and spare no care, cost or labor, to make all sure, if a man once saw heaven and hell, would he not afterwards exceed the most resolute? I confess there is much weakness of faith in things unseen, even when there is sincerity. But where there is little diligence for the world to come, I must think there is but little belief of it, and that such persons are not aware how much they secretly doubt the truth of it. Most complain of the uncertainty of their title to salvation, and very little of their uncertainty whether there be a heaven and a hell whereas a hearty persuasion of the latter would do more to convince him of the former than long examinations and many marks of trial. It would, indeed, confound faith and reason if in the body we had as clear and lively apprehensions of heaven and hell as sight would occasion, nor is a soul fit while in the body to bear such a sight 
but yet there is an overruling seriousness to which the soul must be brought by a firm persuasion of future things. And he that is careful and serious for this world and looks after a better only as a secondary object must give me leave to think that he believes but as he lives and that his doubting of the heaven and hell is greater than his belief. Then for what should my soul more pray than for a clearer and stronger faith? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I have many thousand times grown to thee under this burden of remaining darkness and unbelief. I have many thousand times thought of the evidences of Christianity and of the necessity of a lively, powerful, active faith. I have cried to thee night and day, Lord, increase my faith. I have written and spoken that to others which might be most useful to myself and render my faith more like sense. Yet, Lord, how dark is this world! What a dungeon is flesh! How little clearer are my perceptions of things unseen than they were long ago. Is no more growth of them to be expected? Does the soul no more increase in vigorous perception when the body no more increases in the vigor of sensation? Must I sit down with so slow a measure when I am almost there, where faith has changed for sight? Oh, let not a soul that is driven from this world and weary of vanity and can think of little else but immortality, that seeks and cries both night and day for the heavenly light, and fain would have some foretaste of glory and some more of the first fruits of the promised joys, let not such a soul either long or cry or strive in vain. Punish not my former grieving of thy spirit by deserting a soul that cries for thy grace so near its great and inconceivable change. Let me not languish in vain desires at the door of hope, nor pass with doubts and fears from this veil of misery, which should be the season of triumphant faith and hope and joy, if not when I am entering on the world of joy. O thou that hast left us so many words of promise, that our joy may be full, send, O send thy comforter. For without his heavenly beams, after a thousand thoughts and cares, it will still be night and winter with my soul. But I fear a distrust of God and my Redeemer has had too great a hand in my desires after a more distinct knowledge than God ordinarily gives to souls in flesh. I know that I should implicitly, absolutely, and quietly commit my soul into my Redeemer's hands, for a distrustful care of the soul as well as the body is our great sin and misery. Yet we must desire that our knowledge and belief may be as distinct as divine revelations are. We can love no farther than we know, and the more we know of God and glory, the more we shall love, desire, and trust. If I may not be ambitious of too sensible and distinct foretastes of things unseen, yet I must desire and beg the most fervent love of them of which I am capable, that my soul may not pass with distress and terror, but with suitable triumphant hopes to everlasting pleasures. O Father of lights, who givest wisdom to them that ask, shut not up this sinful soul in darkness, leave me not to grope in unsatisfied doubts at the door of celestial light, deny me not now the lively exercises of faith, hope, and love, which are the stirrings of the new creature, the dawnings of eternal day, and the earnest of the promised inheritance, though like Cicero's after reading Plato's book on immortality, our doubts return, and our fear interrupts and weakens our desires and joys, yet I find that it is chiefly an irrational fear occasioned by the darkness of the mind, the greatness of the change, the dreadful majesty of God, and man's natural aversion to death, even when reason is fully satisfied that such fear is consistent with certain safety. Were I on the top of a castle or steeple, fastened by the strongest chains, or guarded by the surest battlements, 
I could not possibly look down without fear, and so it is with our prospect into the life to come. If, therefore, my soul sees undeniable evidence of immortality and is able by irrefragable arguments to prove a future blessedness, if I am convinced that divine promises are true and trust my soul and all my hope upon them, then neither my averseness to die nor my irrational fear of entering upon eternity can invalidate the reasons of my hope or prove the unsoundness of my faith, but only the weakness of it. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? was Christ just reproved to his disciples. A timorous heart needs to be chided by saying, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. Chapter 3. What it is to depart and to be with Christ. Having proved that faith and hope have a certain future happiness to expect, the text, the text directs me next to consider what it is to be with Christ and what it is to depart in order to be with Him. Roman numeral number 1. To be with Christ includes presence with Him, union to Him, and participation of His happiness. Number 1. The presence of Christ, which pious separate spirits shall enjoy, must refer to his Godhead as well as to his human soul and body. We shall be present with the divine nature of Christ as manifested in and by his glory. He teaches us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, because in heaven the Father gloriously shines forth the holy souls. The soul of man is eminently said to be in the head, because there it understands and reasons, and not in the foot or hand, though it also be there. As we look a man in the face when we talk to him, so we look up to heaven when we pray to God. Though in God we live and move and have our being, both as a God of nature and grace, yet by the works and splendor of his glory he is eminently in heaven, manifesting himself there by some created glory, for his essence is the same everywhere. We shall be present with the human nature of Christ, both soul and body. But here our present narrow thoughts must not too boldly presume to determine the difference between Christ's glorified body and his flesh upon earth, nor where his glorified body is, nor how far it extends, nor where in his soul and his glorified body differ, seeing it is called the spiritual body. We can conceive no more of such a body than that it is pure, in incorruptible, invisible to mortal eyes, and fitted to the most perfect state of the soul. Nor need we wonder how a whole world of glorified bodies can all of them be present with the one body of Christ. For as the solar beams are so present with the air that none can discern the difference of the places which they possess, and a world of bodies are present with them both, so may all our bodies, without any confusion, be present with Christ's body. Number 2. The union to Christ, which pious separate spirits shall also enjoy, must be like that of subjects to their king. But how much more we know not. The more spiritual, pure, and noble any natures are, the more inclination they have to union. Such instances of union as a vine and branches, the head and members, are of extensive import, yet being but similitudes, we cannot determine how extensive. Far be it from us to think that Christ's glorified body is of such an earthly composition and of such a limited extent as it was here. For then, as his disciples and a few more were present with him, while the rest of the world were absent and had none of his company, so it would be in heaven. But all true believers, from the creation to the end of the world, as well as as Paul, shall be with Christ and see his glory. And though there will be different degrees of glory, as there have been of holiness, yet none in heaven or at such a distance from Christ as not to enjoy the felicity of his presence. Number 3. We shall also have communion with the divine and human natures of Christ, 
both which shall be the felicitating objects of perfect knowledge and holy love to the separate spirits before the resurrection. The chief part of this communion will consist in Christ's communications to the soul, as the whole creation is more dependent on God than the fruit on the tree, or plant on the earth, or the members on the body. So God uses second causes in his communications to inferior nature. And it is more than probable that Christ's human nature is a second cause of communicating both grace and glory, both to man in the body and to the separate soul. As the sun is both a cause and object of sight to the eye, so is Christ of the soul. For as God, so the Lamb is the light and glory of the heavenly Jerusalem, and in his light they shall have light. Though Christ shall give up the kingdom to the Father so that God may be all in all, and his creatures be fully restored to his favor, and a healing government for recovering lapsed souls to God shall be no more needed, yet surely he will not cease to be our mediator, the church's head, and the channel of everlasting light, life, and love to all his members, as we now live because he lives, like the branches in the vine, and as the Spirit now quickens, enlightens, and sanctifies us, is first the Spirit of Christ before it is ours, and is communicated from God through him to us, so will it be in the state of glory. There our union and communion with him will be perfected, and not destroyed or diminished. As it would be arrogance to think we shall be above the need and use of Christ in his communication, so, I doubt not, we shall ever have use for one another, as is plainly intimated by sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, by being in Abraham's bosom, by sitting at Christ's right and left hand in his kingdom, by being made ruler over ten cities, and by joining with those that sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And certainly if I be with Christ, I shall be with all them that are with Christ, even with all the heavenly society. Our mortal bodies must have so much room that the earth is little enough for all its inhabitants. So narrow is our capacity of communion here, that those of the antipodes, or on the opposite side of the earth, are almost as strange to us as if there were another world. What strangers are we to those of another kingdom, county, or parish, and even of another house? But we have great cause to think, by many scriptural expressions, that our heavenly union and communion will be nearer and more extensive, and that all the glorified shall know each other. It is, I confess, a pleasant thought to me, and greatly helps my willingness to die, to think that I shall go to all the holy ones, both Christ and angels and pious separate spirits. They are each of them better and more amiable than I am. Many are better than one, and the perfect whole than a sinful part, and the new Jerusalem is the glory of the creation. God has given me a love to all that are holy for their holiness, and a love to the work of love and praise, which they continually and perfectly perform, and a love to his celestial habitation, to his glory shining there. My old acquaintance with many a holy person gone to Christ makes my thoughts of heaven the more familiar to me. Oh, how many of them could I name! And it is no small encouragement to one that is to enter upon an unseen world, to think that he goes no untrodden path, nor enters into a solitary or singular state, but follows all that, from the creation to this day, have passed by death into endless life. Oh, how emboldening to consider that I am to go the same way, and to the same place and state, with all the believers and saints that have ever gone before me. Roman numeral number two. But I must depart before I can thus be with Christ. I must particularly depart from this body, from all its former delights, and also from more rational pleasures belonging to the present life and world. Number one, 
I must depart from this body. Here these eyes must see no more. This hand move no more. These feet walk no more. This tongue speak no more. As much as I have loved and overloved this body, I must leave it to the grave. There must it lie and rot in darkness, as a neglected and loathsome thing. That is the fruit of sin, and nature would not have it so. But it is only my shell, my tabernacle, my clothing, and not my soul itself. It is only a dissolution, earth to earth. It is but an instrument laid by, when all its work is done, a servant dismissed, when his service is ended, as I cast by my loot when I have better employment. It is but as flowers die in autumn, and plants in winter. It is but a separation from a troublesome companion, and putting off a shoe that pinched me. Many a sad and painful hour, many a weary night and day have I had. What cares and fears, what griefs and groans has this body cost me? Alas, how much of my precious time has been spent to maintain, please, or repair it. Often have I thought that it cost me so dear to live, yea, to live a painful, weary life, that were it not for the higher ends of life, I had little reason to be much in love with it, or to be loath to leave it. To depart from such a body is but to remove from a sordid habitation. I know it is a curious, wonderful work of God, and not to be despised or unjustly dishonored, but admired and well used. Yet our reason wonders that so noble a spirit should be so meanly housed, for we must call it our vile body. To depart from such a body is but to be loosed from the bondage of corruption, from the clog and prison of the soul. That body, which was a fit servant to the soul of innocent man, is now become as a prison. And further, to depart from such a body is but to be separated from an accidental enemy, and one of our greatest and most hurtful enemies. Not, indeed, as a work of our Creator, but as the effect of sin. What could Satan, or any other enemy of our souls, have done against us without our flesh? What is it but the interest of this body that stands in competition with the interests of God in our souls? What else do the profane sell their heavenly inheritance for, as Esau his birthright? What else is the bait of ambition, covetousness, and sensuality? What takes up the thoughts and cares which we should lay out upon things spiritual and heavenly, but this body and its life, what still the way men's hearts from the heavenly pleasures of faith, hope, and love, but the pleasures of this flesh. This draws us to sin and hinders us from and in our duty. Were it not for our bodily interests and temptations, how much more innocent and holy might I live? I should have nothing to care for but to please God and be pleased in Him. Were it not for the care of this bodily life, what employment should my will and love have but to delight in God and love Him and His interests, were it not for the love of the body and its concerns? By this the mind is darkened, the thoughts diverted, our wills corrupted, our heart and time alienated from God, our guilt increased, our heavenly desires and hopes destroyed, life is made unholy and uncomfortable, and death terrible. God and souls are separated, and eternal life is neglected and in danger of being utterly lost. I know that in all this sinful soul is the chief cause and agent, but is not bodily interest, is temptation, bait, and end? Is not the body and its life and pleasure the chief alluring cause of all the sin and misery? And shall I take such a body to be better than heaven, or refuse to be loosed from so troublesome a yoke fellow, and separated from so burdensome and dangerous a companion? Number two, I must depart from all the former pleasures of this body. I must taste no more sweetness in meat and drink, in rest or action, or any such thing as now delights me. Houses and lands, goods and wealth must all be left, 
and the place where I live must know me no more. All I labored for, or took delight in, must be no more to me than if they had never been. But consider, O my soul, thy former pleasures are already past. Thou loosest none of them by death, for they are all lost before, unless a mortal grace had made them immortal by sanctifying them. All that death does to them is to prevent a repetition of them upon earth. Is not the pleasure which we lose by death common to every brute? Meat is as sweet to them, and ease as welcome, and appetite as vehement. Why then should it seem hard to us to lose that when God pleases, which we deprive the brutes of at our pleasure? If we are believers, we only exchange these delights of life for the greater delights of a life with Christ, a comfort which our fellow creatures of brutes have not. Are not the pleasures of life usually embittered with such pain that they seldom countervail the attending vanity and vexation? It is true nature desires life under sufferings that are tolerable rather than die, but that is not so much from the sensible pleasures of life as from mere natural inclination to life which God has implanted in us. Do we not willingly interrupt these pleasures every night when we betake ourselves to sleep? To say that rest is my pleasure is but to say that my daily labors and cares are so much greater than my waking pleasures that I am glad to lay by both together. If we can thus be content every night to die, as it were, to all our waking pleasures, why should we be unwilling to die to them all at once? If they be forbidden pleasures which you are unwilling to leave, those must be left before you die, otherwise you had better never have been born. Every wise and godly man casts them off with detestation. Indeed, the same cause which makes men unwilling to live a holy life has a great hand in making them unwilling to die even because they are loath to leave the pleasures of sin. If the wicked be converted, he must be gluttonous and drunken no more. He must live in pride, vanity, worldly-mindedness, and sensual pleasures no more, and therefore he draws back from a holy life as if it were from death itself. But what is this to those who have mortified the flesh with the affections and lusts? Consider also that these forbidden pleasures are the great impediments both of our holiness and of our truest pleasures. One of the reasons why God forbids them is because they hinder us from the better, and if, for our own good, we must forsake them when we turn to God, we should therefore be the more willing to die in order to be free from the danger of them, and especially since death will transmit us to infinitely greater pleasures. Number 3. I must also depart from the more rational pleasures which I have enjoyed in this body, as, for instance, from my present studies which are delights far above those of sensual sinners. But let me consider how small is our knowledge compared with our ignorance. How little does the knowledge of the learned differ from the thoughts of a child? As trifles are the manner of childish knowledge, so artificial words and forms make up more of the learning of the world than is commonly understood. God and the life to come are little better known by the learned and often much less than by many of the unlearned. Of how little use is it to know what is contained in many hundred volumes that fill our libraries and have given their authors the name of virtuous, not for their having the virtue to live to God or overcoming temptations from the flesh and the world and secure their everlasting hopes. Much of our reading and learning, alas, does us more harm than good. Many a precious hour is lost in them that should be employed in higher pursuits. To many, I fear, it is as unholy as pleasure as others take in thinking of lands and honors, only the more dangerous for being the less suspected. 
I know the knowledge of natural things is valuable and may be sanctified and made some way useful to my highest ends, and I would be at an expense to procure more. But I must earnestly pray, May the Lord forgive me the hours that I have spent in reading things less profitable for the sake of pleasing a mind that would fain know everything instead of spending them for the increase of holiness in myself and others. Yet I must thankfully acknowledge to God that from my youth He taught me to begin with things of the greatest weight and to refer most of my other studies thereto and to spend my days under the motives of necessity and profit to myself and those that were committed to me. I would have men most relish that learning in their health which they will find sweetest in sickness and when near to death. And alas, how expensive a vanity is this knowledge. Though it little differs from a pleasant dream, yet to attain a little excellency in it, how many laborious days and weeks must it cost us. Much study is a weariness of the flesh, and he that increaseth knowledge increases sorrow. What a painful disease and loss of bodily ease and health has it occasioned me. What envy and opposition has it exposed me to? And should a man be loath to die for fear of leaving such troublesome, costly learning and knowledge? Let me especially consider that we shall certainly have a nobler, sweeter, and more extensive knowledge than is here attainable. Love never fails, and we can love no more than we know. But prophecy shall fail, tongues shall cease, knowledge, such as we now have, shall vanish away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. For though my knowledge will not be like that of the blessed God, it will be like that of Holy Spirit. In order for a physician to describe the disease of his patient, he needs much reading and close inquiry. And after all, he goes much upon conjectures, and his knowledge is mixed with many uncertainties and mistakes. But when he opens his corpse, his knowledge is more full and true, and obtained with greater ease and speed. So the sight of God in heaven will deserve the name of wisdom, while our present glimpse is but philosophy or the love of wisdom. We should not, therefore, fear death for fear of losing our knowledge, but rather long for the world of glorious light that we may get out of this darkness into easy, joyful, and satisfying knowledge. Friendship is one of the more rational pleasures enjoyed in this body, and from which I must depart. He that believes not that there are far more and better friends in heaven than there are on earth, believes not, as he ought, that there is a heaven. Our friends here are wise, but they are also unwise. They are faithful, but partly unfaithful. They are holy, but alas, too sinful. They have the image of God, but it is blotted and dishonored by their faults. They do God and His church much service, but they also do too much for Satan, even when they attend the honor of God. They promote the gospel, but they also hinder it by their weakness and ignorance, their selfishness, pride and passion, their divisions and contention. They are our helpers and comforters, but how often are they also our hindrance, trouble and grief? In heaven they are perfectly wise and holy and faithful and there is nothing in them, nor done by them, but what is amiable to God and man. With our faithful friends we have here a mixture of those that are useless and burdensome, or hypocritical and malicious. But in heaven there are none but the wise and holy, no hypocrites, no burdensome neighbors, no treacherous, oppressive, or persecuting enemies. Christ loved his disciples, his kindred, and all mankind, and took pleasures in doing good to all, and so did his apostles. 
But how poor a recompense had he or they from any but from God? Christ's brethren believed not on him. Peter denied him. All his disciples forsook him and fled. And what then could be expected from others? No friends have a perfect suitableness to each other, and those inequalities that are nearest to us are most troublesome. So various and contrary are our apprehensions, interests, educations, our tempers, inclinations, and temptations, that instead of wondering at the discord and confusions of the world, we may rather admire the providence of God which maintains so much order and concord. The greatest crimes that have been charged upon me have been those things which I have thought to be my greatest duties, and for those parts of my obedience to God and my conscience which cost me dearest, and where I please my flesh least, I please the world least. And is this tumultuous militant world a place that I should be loath to leave? I must depart from all the means of grace, though more precious to me than all earthly enjoyments. Shall I love the name of heaven better than heaven itself? Is not the possession of glory better than the promise of it? If a light and guide through the wilderness be good, surely the glorious end must be better. It has pleased God that all things on earth, even the sacred scriptures, should bear the marks of our state of imperfection. Imperfect persons were the penmen. Imperfect human language is a conveyance. Heaven will not, to perfect spirits, be made the occasion of so many errors and controversies as the scriptures are to us imperfect mortals. Yea, heaven is the more desirable, because there I shall better understand the scriptures than here I can ever hope to do. To leave my Bible, and to go to the God in heaven which the Bible reveals, will be no otherwise my loss than to leave the picture for the presence of my friend. As for mere human writings and instructions, the pleasure of my mind is much abated by their great imperfection, and why should I think that my own are blameless? I must forever be thankful for the holy instructions and writings of others, notwithstanding human frailty, and so I must be thankful that God has made any use of my own for the good of souls and the edification of his church. But how many alloys are there to such comforts? If good men and good books or sermons make the world seem over lovely, it will be the mercy of God to abate the temptation, when we are dead to the love of the godly themselves, of learning, books, and ordinances, so far as they serve a selfish interest and tempt our hearts from heavenly aspirations, then indeed the world is crucified to us and we to it. Of all things, a departing soul has least cause to fear losing the knowledge of worldly affairs. If the sun gives light and heat to the earth, why should I think that blessed spirits have no acquaintance with earthly concerns? From the top of a hill I can see more than from below, and shall I know less of earth from heaven than I do now? It is unlikely that my capacity will be so little, or that Christ and all the angels will be so strange to me as to give me no notice of things so interesting to my God and Redeemer, to the holy society of which I am member, and to myself as a member of that society. Spirits are most active and of quick and powerful communication. They need not send letters, nor write books, nor lift up a voice. And as activity, so unity is greatest where there is most perfection, their knowledge, love, and joy will be one. My celestial advancement, therefore, will be no diminution, but an inconceivable increase of my desirable knowledge of things on earth. If indeed I shall know less of things below, it will be because the knowledge of them is a part of vanity and vexation which have no place in heaven. I need not be afraid to hear any more of bloody wars, desolated countries, dissipated churches, persecuted Christians, silenced preachers, party conflicts, contentious divines, censorious professors of religion, with the cries of the poor, or the endless complaints of the melancholy. 
nor need I fear what other men are pleased to suggest, that the church will want me. Is it I or God that must choose the servants and cut out their work? Am I doing God's work or my own? If God's, must not he say what and when and how long? And will not his will and choice be best? If I believe not this, how do I take him for my God? Does God or I know best what is yet to be done, and who is fittest to do it? What am I to those more excellent persons who in all ages God has taken out of the world? Have not many servants of Christ died in their youth, who were far more likely to win souls and glorify God than I am, or ever have been? And shall I, at seventy-six years of age, after such a life of unspeakable mercies, and after almost fifty-three years of comfortable help in the service of my Lord, be now afraid of my reward, and shrink at the sentence of death, and still be desirous to stay here under pretense of further service? We know not what is best for the church as God does. The church and the world are not ours, but His. Not our desires, therefore, but His will must measure out its mercies. Nothing ever lays so heavy on my heart as the sin and misery of mankind, and to think how much of the world lies in folly and wickedness. And for what can I so heartily pray is for the world's recovery. And it is His will that I should show a holy and universal love by praying. Let Thy name be hallowed. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet, alas, how unlike is earth to heaven. What sin and ignorance, confusion and cruelties reign and prosper here. Without a wonderful change, even by a general miracle, how little hope appears that ever these prayers should be answered. Indeed, it makes us better to desire that others may be better, and God seems to permit the ignorance and confusion of this world to help us the more to value and desire the world of light, love, and order. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.